can you answer that? And preferably explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old because I don't, you know, you have to make things simple for me. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Capelo. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how you doing? Hi, Jeffrey. Before we get started, I just want to wish you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, and a happy Thanksgiving to you and yours as well, Marcus. And to all of our uh, listeners, all 17 of our listeners wanted to say happy Thanksgiving to you as well. So, Jeff, I have a question for you, just to yeah. kick things off if we Go can for get it. started. One of the things that I've been thinking a little bit about, and I know very little uh, about this topic, is artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence, um, I think, means lots of different things to uh, different people. It can be used in lots of different you know, contexts. The context I was thinking about it, though, is um, in sort of evaluating information that is, that is gathered. So let's say you're a policymaker of the Defense Department or State Department or something like that, and you're in charge of uh, you know, the North Korea desk, and you have various sources of information. So one of the pieces of information is sometimes people talk about like human intelligence. So uh, you have maybe a spy or you have somebody on the ground that you trust and they, they heard so-and-so or they went to some meeting and they're reporting back about sort of information that they've gathered uh, at a sort of human level. And then you also have like other, other indicators, maybe satellites and things like that. But increasingly, it seems like there is a, a set of um, technologies and, and ways of thinking about uh, intelligence that is, is more sort of artificial in nature, meaning gathered solely by things like computers, like computer programs that can tap into various uh, data sources uh, and, and figure out, presumably, kind of what's, what's happening on the ground. And so it strikes me that that at some point, a policy uh, maker or a, a defense analyst sitting at a desk is going to have information from a variety of sources. So you have human in, in intelligence, you have sort of satellite imagery, you know, and then this artificial intelligence. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on, uh, so number one, like the quality of, of artificial intelligence just generally, like where are we in the, the sort of state of the art uh, with that? But also kind of because I do psychology stuff and I'm interested in this, how, how people are likely to evaluate um, the information that they're getting from artificial intelligence sources versus human intelligence. So in other words, do you think that your typical analyst is more likely to trust uh, what they learn from another human being on the ground uh, and is telling you versus what's being gathered through some um, you know, computer software that, that might be very complicated that they don't completely understand, but is nevertheless telling them uh, something that, that could, could be important. So do you have thoughts on any of this or, or, or not really? The way you, st when people say artificial intelligence, I think Terminator. Uh, is that what you're thinking too? Like, like when, when, or, or uh, self-driving cars, right? Um, or uh, something like that, uh, like the, or the matrix, the, the, the machines come alive and like taking over the world, that sort of thing. And that's what I think when I hear artificial intelligence, this idea that the computers are doing some thinking for themselves. Right. But the way you were using it, I was I just wanted to clarify because you, you kind of contrasted artificial intelligence with human intelligence, um, which is like, you know, the, the term of art for spies, a uh, human in the intelligence business means spies, people giving you information. And, you know, you could, there are other forms of ints, 
uh, other forms of intelligence collection that you might call artificial, although that's not the lingo we usually use. So like signals intelligence, for example, is intercepted communications, but it can also be information gathered through hacking, through kind of cyber attacks. So um, that information, if you got like a stream of data, let's say, off of some source's computer, you, you could call that artificial intelligence, but that's not the same thing. That's, that's, more, that's just like data. Um, that's more equivalent to like a big data source of information rather than an artificial intelligence source of information. So I guess I want to ask you, like, what do you what do you mean when you say artificial intelligence? I have you seen the movie Moneyball. Of course. Right. So in Moneyball, what what gets set up uh, and for those of you that haven't seen it, it's about the uh, Oakland Athletics in the 1990s. And basically, this is a team that didn't have a ton of money. They don't never spent money on on good players or whatever. So they had to sort of find value. Uh, and one of the sort of themes of the movie is that they they started replacing sort of like human scouts. So the way baseball typically was done in the past is you would send like a bunch of people to go watch baseball players and the human scouts would come back and they would say, yeah, this guy can pitch or this guy can't. This guy hit, you know, can hit, this guy can't. And so instead, what they said was, we don't need any of these people. What we're going to do is just look at statistics, like how often they get on base, how often they walk, et cetera. And we're going to use, you know, fancy sort of like computer model, like to tell us which of those statistics is actually important. So you might think as a human being, oh, batting average is really important or whip is important or whatever. But what they figured out was actually there's there's more value with some of these underappreciated, underutilized uh, types of things. So when I think of artificial intelligence, I'm thinking of broadly this sort of like sabermetrics approach to baseball in contrast to like the human intelligence approach to baseball. All right. Yeah. So, so now, now I know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> so I, I it only took us 15 minutes. Yeah, no, the, the well, um, that's because you're using the wrong words. It's, it's oh, not I'm my sorry. fault. My, so, my apologies. Yeah. So like you want to, you want to contrast like your gut feeling uh, with, or, or like maybe even put better um, like human expert opinion. Exactly. Um, based yeah. on some information that's coming in mm-hmm. with more like a data based approach, a data analytics approach. Right. Exactly. So instead of kind of like, you know, reading the news, getting a general sense of what's going on in Eastern Europe, you know, in Ukraine, should we be worried about a Russian invasion? You have some other data stream that's looking at like all the tweets from everyone regarding Russia. Mm-hmm. And there's some measure that you've concocted based on those tweets that's going to say when when this when the sentiment in those tweets turns in a particular direction, that's going to be our indicator that Putin's about to invade Ukraine. And that's going to like turn up, turn on a green light in some or a red light in some office somewhere. And then, you know, we're going to know there's an invasion. So it's right. like the computer's analysis versus the, the human's analysis. Yes. And, you know, I think it kind of parallels in some ways a debate that we often have in the academy in international relations scholarship between more qualitative approaches to uh, <laughs> let the record reflect that that Professor Holmes is rolling his eyes <laughs> of, of, of all the of all the ways to go. It's just like this is how you approach this topic <laughs> to talk about the qualitative quantitative debate in international relations. <laughs> I asked you this question expecting <laughs> to be like, oh, yeah, you know, machine learning is like the best thing ever. Like it's way better than the humans doing it. Humans are stupid. They have all these cognitive biases. All of that gets washed out by the computer. You know, I, that, that qualitative quantitative. Come on. You can do better. I'm just I'm I'm cognizant of our value added here. My friend is like <laughs> <laughs> neither of us are are actual artificial intelligence people. And well, that, so that, but what we do know asking you 
I know about qualitative, quantitative too. Like I, that I, I'm in this discipline. I, I started this by saying, do you know anything about this? You said, yes. I didn't think that meant like I can draw some metaphor to like some other thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like I could do that too. Like I did it with Moneyball, Right. But like, I, I want somebody that actually knows what they're talking about here. You okay. Know? So, so do you, you have a guest? We have a guest, uh, a guest on the <laughs> podcast today. Where's Professor Settle? We need we need uh, Jamie Settle to come on and tell us. Can can I just do my thing and then you can criticize me after I say what I'm trying to yeah, say? Yeah, I, I guess I, I just I, just to clarify, I think what I, I when I when I sort of define artificial intelligence, I I do mean it like very broadly, right? So I think you're you're right that it can mean sort of different things. But I, I guess what I'm saying is like any sort of approach to intelligence where computers and machines and sort of like automation are doing things that would traditionally require like human beings doing it, right? So it's like we can use computers and machines to do the things at a, a much larger scale than uh, humans can. And that's right. like the sort of artificial part of it. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess I should say that in, you know, I'll start with the intelligence world because you kind of brought us there with a reference to human sources. Yeah. The, I think these things have kind of always co- coexisted and always been in a little bit of tension where you have had... Uh, different streams of information, some of which are based on inputs from people on the ground who presumably have some insight due to their perspective on the ground, but who also may have biases due to their perspective on the ground and may not be seeing the whole the whole story. And then you have other forms of information that, you know, maybe a different data stream back in the day, it may have been you know, uh, codes that have been decoded that we have access to. And the analyst is left trying to weigh how much weight do we give to the person on the ground versus this other data stream that we have. I don't think uh, we are at the point yet where analysts are comfortable making decisions based on some black box algorithm that spits out a yes or a no. You know, you throw all the inputs in, it tells you, yes, we're about to have a war, no, we're not. But you don't really have any way of understanding how that came about. I don't think we're at the point in in policy or intelligence world where we're comfortable doing that. But that doesn't mean that those other sources of information aren't real important and becoming more important. We have the capability now to analyze lots of different sources of information and place them alongside other more traditional indicators of what's going on in the world. So whereas we, we used to maybe have, okay, I got a human source, I've got some interceptive communication, and I got to figure out, reconcile the different views I'm getting between these two. Well, now we have that plus maybe a whole lot of automated kinds of indicators that are coming in, sentiments of tweets as one example. So you kind of have to array those against each other or other kinds of data that, that you might find in the world that, that can be kind of harnessed for this purpose. Some of the work that I've done in projects uh, for the Department of Defense has been to try to provide a machine learning kind of analog to the what humans are thinking about when they consider these issues. So in a project with Eric Gardsky at uh, University of California, San Diego, um, we looked at uh, how would you go about predicting proliferation, nuclear proliferation, using data sources rather than, you know, expert views. And our idea with this wasn't so much that this kind of approach would replace human insight, right? We're not trying to do that. We need human experts to kind of understand where all this fits in the grand scheme of things. But I think there are a variety of ways in which putting these tools at the disposal of the human experts can actually improve our analysis in, 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 uh, in several ways. So I, I talked to my class last week on, on uh, nuclear issues. We were talking about nuclear intelligence. 
how do you come up with an assessment of what other countries are doing when it comes to nuclear weapons? And one of the arguments I was making is that nuclear intelligence is really difficult. It's, it's a kind of a hard, uh, it's hard to make assessments in that area. And one of the reasons it's difficult is that it calls for the analysts to understand a lot of different things. So they have to understand kind of the technical story of what's going on in, in a nuclear facility, how quickly are the centrifuges spinning, what is the level of enrichment of the material in that facility. So you have to know some of the, the technical details of that. You really want to know some of the political details of the country you're talking about. So if you're working on Iran's nuclear program, it would be helpful not just to know about Iran's centrifuge technology, but also about Iranian politics and what that means for their pursuit of nuclear weapons. But it's not just Iran that you need to worry about because this nuclear technology has been transferred and sold and uh, um, adjusted from place to place. And so it would be helpful also for that analyst to know about Pakistan's nuclear weapons effort and the technology that they used and Brazil's uh, early nuclear weapons effort, which uses the same uh, sorts of technology and maybe even Iraq's uh, failed um, centrifuge effort back in the day, because that will help you understand what's going on in Iran now. And there's no analyst that knows all that stuff. It's just, it's, a, it's too high a bar. And we, we usually have gotten around that problem by trying to find ways to connect the experts with the other experts they need to make the right decision. But that, that's a hard thing to do. And bureaucracies tend to be really bad at that. They put people in these, these silos. And so you, you have trouble like finding a counterpart who works on a different country or who works on a different issue. And you know we need to make sure that the, the Iran political analyst knows the the carbon fiber technical analyst, and that's a hard thing for, for bureaucracies to manage. So we have a number of challenges in, in doing good intelligence analysis uh, on those issues. And, and a lot of issues are like this. This isn't just nuclear weapons. This is true of, of many, many kinds of issues that we care about in, in national security. And so one way you can think about machine learning and artificial intelligence approaches to, to analyzing information is as an adjunct to expert analysis as helping the analyst kind of surface the issues that they need to spend more time focusing on. So instead of saying, okay, this tool that I'm providing you is going to tell you that um, Bahrain is about to seek nuclear weapons, it will turn on a red light um, on your desk and say, hey, all of these sources put together are leading me to assess that maybe there's some additional risk that Bahrain is, is seeking weapons, and you should look into that more. And that is, we're going to kind of identify some threats, what we call uh, over-the-horizon threats, things that are kind of not quite there, but might be in the future or soon. And we're going to try to draw your attention to those that might have kind of gone without, uh, have gone under the radar without you paying more attention to them. So I think that that role for artificial intelligence is kind of where we are now, that we want to design systems where analysts have access to these sources of information they have access toward these kind of automated analysis platforms where there's a machine learning algorithm that's trying to provide some insight to them. But we're not nearly at the point where we would just take that and run with it. We're at the point where it would prompt the analyst to try to get more information, to try to pin down what's going on in that country so that they can understand why is it that this algorithm, which I you know don't fully understand how it's working, but I kind of understand how it works, why is it that this algorithm is suddenly flagging this country for me to look at? What is what is the the source of that red flag? And can I figure out whether that's something I really need to worry about? There's a lot of work in this area that deals with human-machine joint analysis. Um, and that's something that like DARPA, for example, has funded a lot of work on. Um, and IARPA, the, um, these are the advanced research funders for uh, for 
the defense industry and for the defense department and for the intelligence community. And they, they funded a lot of work on, on how do we create systems where machines and humans can work together to solve these problems. And it's not how do we how do we create systems where the machines can just do it themselves. That's not really where we're at. It's all about how do we interface these two worlds where we create tools that people are comfortable using and that they're using them in an appropriate way. And that's uh, that's been a little bit of a challenge um, because I think ex- subject matter experts are kind of naturally reluctant to just like pick up whatever uh, indicator I hand them. And, you know, I say, oh, that was built with a support vector machine, so you can trust it. But no, I mean, they don't. And they, they don't understand where it came from, and, and they're not going to trust it. And so we have to build up uh, these kinds of systems that help people learn how to use the tools that are at their disposal and use them appropriately. So it sounds, Jeff, like what you're what you're suggesting is that one sort of value of the algorithm is not really um, on the decision making per se, right? It's sort of it's sort of giving the human analyst um, insight into something that they might want to like pay attention to, which is another way of saying like the algorithm, like the value might actually be kind of separating the noise from the signal, right? It's like the world's complicated out there. There's a lot going on. The algorithm, you know, can kind of help figure out. Here's what you do need to pay. This is the, the 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 stuff you don't really need to pay attention to at the moment. We think based on the, the how the algorithm is programmed, and, but here's the stuff that you do need to pay attention to. So it's like kind of honing in on what the the limited attention span uh, of the human analyst should sort of like start to to focus on. Is that is that basically right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's it really is about limited resources. Like we don't have the ability to have a subject matter expert on every possible issue at every possible time, focusing all their attention on it. We just can't do it. So if we want to put our resources in the right place, then one way we can do that is we can help humans work more efficiently by giving them these additional tools. And I think that's that's a big part of the story, is trying to make sure we're focusing our efforts in the right places. So one of the the important things here is triaging, right? Like like finding the appropriate place to put our efforts. And, and if there's not enough time for every issue, then this kinds of tools can help or resources, then this kind of tool can help us focus our resources in the place where it is the most urgent need. Um, and that's particularly tricky to do for these over the horizon threats where they're all extremely low likelihood threats. So in the world of nuclear proliferation, there's like a whole set of countries that, yeah, maybe in 10, 15 years, they could pursue nuclear weapons if they want to, but like they're all equally unlikely. <laughs> so, so like, where do you put your attention? And, and I think there are a number of issues like that in international relations. Once you've captured the low-hanging fruit, right? Like, okay, here are the five most likely hotspots in the world. Those we should put a lot of attention into. But then the second tier, there's like a big second tier of places where things could go wrong. And so uh, which one do we focus on? Which of the many countries that could suffer from political instability going forward is the one where we should put most of our attention? And these kinds of tools can help us decide where that goes. There's uh, an aspect of this that goes to early warning. A number of artificial intelligence, machine learning kinds of tools are designed to kind of be an early indicator of something that brings it to light before the human analyst might have noticed it. So the kinds of like uh, tools that are downloading every tweet and kind of evaluating them for for information are, are along these lines. Like they're, they're going to tell us a day or two before <laughs> some something happens is, is the idea. Um, whether or not that that is actually how they works is, is a different story. There are a number of uh, event data sources in the world. This is a big thing in 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 political science now. Uh, event data streams where um, we have 
uh, computers capturing every news article from every news organization and running it through this kind of algorithm to try to decide, okay, is this a mention of a conflict, a skirmish? How can we code it? And then we can kind of surface these real-time tools to say, okay, things look like they're getting more heated in this part of the war zone versus this part of the war zone. And so there's an early warning piece of this story. These kinds of tools can let you play what if with the world in a way that is difficult to do in, in, in for with human analysts for a variety of reasons. But because you are gathering data and having some algorithm evaluate it, you can then say to the algorithm, okay, that's fine. But what if the economy were doing better? Now tell me what's going on. Or that's fine. But what if, you know, France drops out of the EU? Now what does it look like? And you can you can take those steps with a with an analytic tool like these that are based on kind of machine learning algorithms more easily than for human beings because human beings suffer from a variety of cognitive cognitive biases that we're all kind of vaguely aware of right we have uh, uh, recency bias it's very hard for us to kind of move out of this world of just extrapolating from where we are into the future this kind of inertia makes it really hard for us to evaluate these kind of what if scenarios in a objective way. And uh, these analytic tools that I'm talking about can can help us in doing that. And I kind of related to this is there are a whole range of what we call in uh, the, the policy intelligence world structured analytic techniques that are designed to help analysts think outside the box and evaluate these kinds of what if scenarios. And very often they are uh, they start with a made up scenario, for better or for worse. Like okay, in this in this war game that we're playing. China has just kind of uh, done something in the South China Sea. They've taken over this part of the South China Sea, and they're uh, firing at everyone that comes close. Okay, go. And then the, the, it's time for the U.S. team to decide what to do, or time for the, the Philippines team to decide what to do. And those are fine, but they're, they're very artificial. And uh, what these tools can do for us is they can ground these scenarios in a fake reality, a reality that's constructed by the algorithm. So we can say, okay, here's a world in which China is more aggressive. Plug that into the algorithm. Now, now what does that world look like? Tell us what that looks like. And now let's go from there for our war game. Because now our war game is based on something that's maybe a little more, a little more basis in reality than the thing we just come up with off the top of our head to try to, to, try to run these kinds of um, run these kinds of exercises. So I think there are, there are a variety of ways in which these tools can be used to improve the quality of our policymaking and our analysis uh, going forward. Fascinating stuff. I mean, one of the, the interesting parts, um, you mentioned cognitive biases, and I, and I agree that um, this might be one area where it can be difficult for the human analysts because they, they obviously have a lot going on you know, psychologically. But interestingly enough, there's another uh, bias called the automation bias. I don't know if you've, you've heard of this one, but basically people are more likely, all else being equal, to trust things that come out of automated processes, right? So in a weird way, you could imagine that this really helps the people, you know, sort of that are that are pushing artificial intelligence and, um, you know, decision-making along those lines because you you have this sort of built-in heuristic in the, in the minds of people that they're they're sort of trusting oftentimes of this type of, of automation. But what's what's intriguing to me, though, is that when I hear about artificial intelligence, what I what normally comes out is what you alluded to earlier, which is that human subject matter experts often have a very tough time trusting this stuff. There was the um, the Project Maven, is that what it was, with like the drones, the, they're taking video footage from drones and then using like artificial intelligence to, uh, I guess, make some assessments about likely terrorist activity or something like that. And 
the stories that I remember reading back from that a, a couple of years ago were that the the people that would make the ultimate decisions had a hard time getting to the point where they could trust what was going on with that artificial intelligence because they just didn't, I think, you know, fully understand the algorithm. They didn't really understand uh, much of what was going on. So you alluded to this a second ago, but how do you take somebody who's been doing, you know, this for 40 years in their career and you, you sit them down and you say, okay, look, I got this new thing here. Uh, this is a computer program that's going to tell you what you have to worry about, or this is a computer program that's going to help you make decisions. How do, how do you convince somebody who's used to doing this kind of the, the manual way, the old school way, to take this technology seriously when they have very little or no insight into the algorithm? Uh, they didn't program the algorithm themselves. They might have been involved potentially when the algorithm was being created. Maybe people came to them and asked them for their input and things like that. But it's, it's, it's certainly kind of far removed from what they're used to doing. So how do you build that trust in, in the artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's a great question. That's there's like a whole area of research that focuses on these kinds of what are called hybrid systems where you pair humans and machines to kind of come to the best conclusion. And there are a few ways to go about this. And one way is the the way I pitched at the beginning, which is you're not asking the the analyst to trust anything. What you're saying is hey, why don't you take a second look at Saudi Arabia in this case, right? Like, you, you give your first look, fine, but we're telling you, like, hey, something's going on, why don't you take another look? And then it's really up to the analyst what they're going to do with that. And I think most analysts will take that in the spirit it's intended, and if they have a free moment, all right, I'll spend an extra minute on, on Saudi Arabia. But there are also a variety of ways to verify that the machine learning technique or whatever you're using is providing valid information and obviously that's what what is done before those things are fielded so there there is no machine learning algorithm out there that's in use that hasn't had at least an attempt made to validate what it's doing and if you involve the analyst in that process that validation process then you can maybe increase confidence that the output of this thing is is worthwhile so in the in the case of my project looking at nuclear proliferation we did was we built this model, this uh, machine learning model, based on some of the information we had, and then we tested the model on some other information that we hadn't given the the machine. So we say, okay, based on this information, we want you to come up with your approach to to figuring out whether a country is proliferating, and we that's called training. So we train the model based on that one set of information. And then we said to the model, okay, here are some other countries we might be worried about. Tell me of these countries, which of them are pursuing nuclear weapons? And this is the test part of the, of the approach. And we already know the answers for the tests because these are things that already happened. So we're, we're feeding it like Israel in 1970. Does this country have a nuclear weapon? We'll feed it, you know, India in 1972. Does this country have a nuclear weapon? And we ask the model, well, what do you think? And um, then we evaluate its answers, and it doesn't get everything right. No model does. But what it can do is it can give you a probabilistic estimate. It can say, well, there's a 48% there's a chance that India has a nuclear weapons program in 1972. And that's really interesting, whether or not India does have a nuclear weapons program in, 19, in uh, 1972, because you can look at the false positives, you can look at the false negatives, and you can get some kind of um, what we call face validity off this. So you, here's a list of the countries that are most at risk for nuclear weapons pursuit, according to this machine learning tool. Well, do those pass the sniff test for an analyst who does this for a living? So if you put that list in front of someone who's an expert in nuclear proliferation and ask them, hey, are these reasonable guesses? 
Well, yeah, it turns out, and at least um, in the case of this project, these are things that like, okay, like we think Iran started its program in this year instead of this year, but this is one year earlier. So it's plausible that they may have had a program in that year too. And this country, yeah, they didn't have a nuclear weapons program, but there were some people who thought they did. So like this also seems kind of on the face of it valid. And this kind of a face validity approach is one way that you can increase confidence in the output of the model so that when you're actually fielding it in the real world on information that we don't know the answer to, you can think, okay, well, maybe this is there's something here and we should figure out why our model keeps telling us Saudi Arabia is seeking nuclear weapons. Um, Maybe we'll take another look at that country. As an aside to this, I I would imagine that one of the the problems a lot of academics face that want to sort of jump into this this world and do this work um, is that a lot of the, the data or, or sources of data that will be going into the model, you would imagine, are, are, are classified, right? So you would need clearances. So, I mean, how does, how does this work if you are trying to create a model um, for something that uh, is sort of sensitive and you think you have, you know, good data sources, but you don't, you don't have everything that's, that's available to you? I mean, is this, is this a, a, one of these issues where, you know, for your, your average academic who doesn't have a security clearance, is going to have a hard time creating, you know, realistic models because they don't have access to the, the types of data uh, that you might need in order to have a model that that actually works. Is this is this a problem or is this not really become an issue? It is certainly the case that there are people within government doing this work to, who do have access to the data. And so they are in a position to say, OK, well, we're going to use the best data available. For academics who are kind of throwing these things over the transom and hoping that someone uses it, it's a little bit of a different calculation. But I I think the argument I would make is, okay, we're using our crappy unclassified data to to build this model, and it's giving us these amazing results. Okay, now you take it, plug in your much better data, which maybe isn't that much better, but they like to think it is, and... Uh, you're going to get even better results, right? And and it's uh, if we can show the proof of concept works on um, publicly accessible data, then um, it's very likely to be as effective or more effective if the database is better, if it's more recent, if it's more up to date, if it's coming from more trusted sources. Um, knowing all the data problems we have with with information in the real world, where someone has to code it by hand, or it's being um, it's a subset of the information that we really want. Um, I I had a project um, some years ago, I was looking at um, requests by countries to receive assistance with their nuclear research efforts, their civilian nuclear research efforts by the International Atomic Energy Agency. This is the international body that is responsible for verifying nuclear material all over the world. The other thing they do is they provide development assistance to countries who want to use nuclear technology for agriculture, for medicine, for a variety of other things. And uh, we had access to data from the IEA, the publicly accessible information that talked about which countries got particular kinds of technical assistance programs at what time. And the project uh, with uh, colleague Rob Brown looked at, do countries that have nuclear weapons programs get particular kind of technical assistance? It turns out that countries that have nuclear weapons efforts seek out particular kinds of assistance that can help them with those nuclear weapons efforts. Not tremendously shocking, but it turns out it's like a really good indicator of nuclear weapons 
pursuit, that here's a country, we don't know if they're pursuing weapons, but the fact that they're asking the IEA for these particular kinds of technical assistance programs is, is something we should, it's an indicator, it's something we should maybe worry about. Maybe that means they actually have a nuclear weapons program. And when we were talking to folks in government about this, part of what we were saying was, we're using just the projects that were granted by the International Atomic Energy Agency for this data project. What we really want to use is the, all the projects that were requested, which the International Atomic Energy Agency knows, right? They have in their, their files all the requests that these countries made, only a subset of which were ultimately granted to the country. And so if the IEA wanted to do this analysis, they would have all of this information available to them that we didn't have, and they would likely be able to come to a uh, much better conclusion. And maybe this turns out to be an even stronger indicator once you have inside information with which to, to, to feed into it. Um, so I think we're often in a situation where we're building the model based on what's publicly available, but there is secret information somewhere or closely held information somewhere that could really improve the outcomes. It seems like what you're what you're saying is that most of the uses today uh, that we that we know about anyway seem to be cases where um, the artificial intelligence systems are providing inputs to humans to make um, uh, decisions, and it tends to be the cases you're talking about are these sort of like you know long horizon type type deals. Um, are there many cases or any of uh, fully automated decisions for the use of force? So I was thinking about something like. You know Israel's like Iron Dome. You know that that's you know it's intercepting missiles and and things like that, intercepting rockets. But are there other cases where it's actually the case that there are decisions that are made automatically by an artificial intelligence system for actions that either we know or very likely will result in in destruction and in death, either of civilians or troops or or whatever? Do we have many examples of that today? Well, there are specific weapon systems that work that way, that are basically automated systems once the OK is given to use them. So uh, as you mentioned, missile defense systems work like this, that they are, they are inherently um, automated, no human in the loop. They just kind of do their thing once you fire them. Pretty much any kind of missile defense works like this because it has to kind of make a decision about where to go and what to do um, at, at a a scale at a speed that is impossible for a human being to do. Right. There, the, there, the problem is really time, right? It's not so much, you know, like taking in all this, all this data. It's just, you have to do something that a human doesn't have time to really, really well, do. It's, right? it's making constant adjustments based on the data it's taking in, yeah. right? So there's like a set of sensor systems that it's, it's feeding into. No, no person could do that. So that's one case. There are um, guns that work like this. Um, there are all like automated anti-aircraft guns, automated anti-ship guns. Um, we've had for many years that basically you, you push a button and they repel all all invaders, right? That's their their job is to just fire at anything that looks like an enemy. And they have varying levels of sophistication in terms of how they determine who the enemy is. In terms of uh, other kinds of automated systems, um, many drones are automated pretty significantly up to the decision to fire. Many of them have the capability to also be automated up through the decision to fire and, and actually like shoot, shoot at someone um, or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have flown a drone. And if you, if you fly like even a, a couple hundred dollar drone that you get, they basically fly themselves, right? Like they're, they're not relying on the, the human most of the time to, to do the actual flying. And, you know, we've had autopilot systems for a long time for all kinds of aircraft. But uh, drones have kind of taken this to a new level where you can like point to where you want the drone to go. It goes there, it circles, it waits for instructions, it provides data back. And some drones, if you tell it, you know, we're looking for this kind of target, can um, find that target and shoot it. 
to my knowledge, those fully automated systems all the way to the decision to shoot to kill are not currently in service in that way, that we have kept a human in the loop um, for all the militaries that I know of that deploy these systems. Um, but I'm not sure I would know. You know, there's a big m movement in civil society and nonprofits to try to push back on this idea of killer robots that where we take the human out of the loop, we want to always have the human in the loop in the system. And I think there are, there are arguments on both sides that my uh, students in my class are going to hear about on Monday uh, when we talk about this. <laughs> how, this how apropos. Yeah, uh, this uh, kind of killer robot systems where, you know, you can argue that it, there's an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility for, for people to kind of be in the loop here and not allow computers to shoot at people. But um, there's another argument to be made that uh, the ethical thing would be to let the computers handle it um, because they're likely to make better decisions than people. Right. Presumably less likely to make a mistake, although there's no guarantee. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the interesting questions for me is what, what this does uh, if, we, if we do move to a time where fully automated weapon systems are just a thing and they're making decisions through artificial intelligence about when to fire, um, what that means for things like blame attribution and uh, intentionality assessment, you know, will it be, will it be different if the public uh, on the receiving end of attack knows that it was a human being sending that, that missile versus if it was an uh, automated computer doing it? Like, will that, will that have a, a, an effect on how the, you know, the public sees it, both, I guess, on the receiving side and the sending side? Um, it, it seems different if you, if you know that the attack originated from a computer versus, a, you know, it originated from a human being. Um, and it might be different if that ends up being a case where there's a mistake that gets made, humans making mistakes. Um, you know, we can, we can trust that that happens. We all make mistakes. That's fine. Computers aren't supposed to make as many mistakes, right? Cause the whole point is that they're supposed to take away these biases and, you know, uh, have add a level of certainty to the, to the thing. Um, so anyway, so I, I don't know how that's going to play out, but that, that's an interesting sort of future condition, it seems like, where we have attacks that might be summer generated by computers solely uh, and what that means for, for assessing uh, the intentionality and the blame. That'll be, that'll be something to think about in the future. Yeah, I think it matters a lot when you think about what signal is sent by the use of force, and which is something, you know, we want to think about. This goes back to kind of Schelling's diplomacy of violence. And if if you... If the purpose of the use of force is to demonstrate your seriousness about something, demonstrate your commitment to something, your resolve, your strength, then if somebody else is making the decision, if it's just an automated you know, loop in an algorithm that's deciding to execute force here, then it loses much of its signaling quality. I mean, there was there was maybe a signal sent by designing that algorithm in the first place and putting it into place. But, you know, in terms of the actual thing that just happened, the actual fact that that aircraft was shot down doesn't tell us much anymore about the resolve of the people who shot it down if it was just a an automated system that did it. And I think that's bad in, in the sense that, you know, we, we kind of think that sending signals and in international relations, this it's kind of the opposite of cheap talk. It's is is important for keeping us out of conflicts um, and for making clear everyone knows what will be escalatory and what will be uh, and what won't be. And um, when you kind of take the people out of the loop in that way, you're sending a somewhat different message to the to the adversary. Again, we touched on something, you know, a little little something about it. And it was fantastic. It's always the best when we have something that uh, one of us knows something about. It's great. Well, and I mean, will, will the future of face to face diplomacy be like. A computer <laughs> staring into the eyes of the neural network and well i actually uh let me let me let me interest that seriously 
Yeah. You know, in, in my little neck of the woods, uh, one of the interesting uh, pieces of this is not really artificial intelligence so much as um, interest in the State Department and, and ministries of foreign affairs around the world and sort of like augmented reality and virtual reality when it comes to uh, diplomacy. You, I was showing my students pictures of um, Biden and Xi having the summit uh, the other day where they're on Zoom, you know, and, and you know, it was striking because Xi's sitting in this like ballroom. Uh, at this this table, so he was probably about fifty yards away from the big screen TV, and Biden's kind of huddled in this small. It looks like, like a situation room. You know, it was like, the optics were totally different. He's got his um, Chromebook, you know, open. He's got his Chromebook, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. He's got his BlackBerry. Uh, and one of the one of the points that uh, that people have made over the over the pandemic, and and people who are, who are studying, you know, sort of intermediated inter- interaction through computers before the pandemic. You know, there there is looming technology that will make it uh, more like you're you're in the room with the other person, uh, which could theoretically change a lot of of how we pursue diplomacy. So instead of having this sort of like you know representation uh, that's that's digital and it's very flat and all the problems with with Zoom that everybody knows about now, um, if you actually have the ability to sort of like feel the room a little bit, uh, maybe shake hands, you know, through this virtual reality world, um, that that could be actually a game changer for for diplomacy and make it so that if you have uh, more iterative interactions, which is something I've been calling for on this podcast for 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 years now, uh, more <laughs> diplomacy, it'll be easier uh, with the better you know virtual reality uh, technology. And there actually is precedent. So there were there were uh, embassies. I think Sweden had one of the first ones where they had this sort of like augmented reality uh, embassy, and so you would go and visit uh, the Swedish embassy, and you you could like walk in. And you could like meet with uh, uh, civil servants from Sweden in the embassy and talk to them. In a very oh, so is experience. that why we haven't had any wars with Sweden? That's why the, we haven't had the any wars. augmented exactly, reality. Can I just uh, into an aggression, regression? That's the reason. I just want to stop you and just call bullshit on this whole thing. I cannot imagine a situation where putting on your VR headset is going to give you a different result than looking at the person via Zoom. I mean, I really, I, I think this is a real stretch. Like, I, I understand you, you're you're invested in this face to face diplomacy thing, but like, mm-hmm. those are not their actual faces. It's not their actual faces. <laughs> you don't have to die on this hill, Marcus. The the, no, the I, metaverse is not going to revolutionize diplomacy, and uh, I'm like tremendously skeptical that yeah. I, I don't I don't doubt that maybe someday in the future this will be the way that we talk to people just because like right. that's the the current state of the art the same way yeah we used to call people and now we zoom call with people right fine but but like i i first of all i'm skeptical there's any real benefit of zoom over uh, an actual like telephone call an old school telephone call but i mean certainly when you get into vr wh- what is your value added here I mean, it, how, how, do, how do you envision that this VR reality keeps us out of a war in a way that Zoom would not keep us out of a war? During the Cuban Missile Crisis, if Kennedy had the ability to sit down with Khrushchev and explain what it was that the United States was doing, what the United States was fearful about, the actions that the United States wanted to take, the trade that they wanted to make with the Soviet Union to resolve the situation, my hypothesis is that that would have been far superior than sending letters back and forth to one another. So if you imagine a situation where the United States and China are in some type of diplomatic crisis, maybe there's a situation with Taiwan. And what we need to do is sit down with our Chinese counterparts and explain what we're all about and reassure them 
and sit down with our Taiwanese counterparts and reassure them. There's no better way to do that than having a face-to-face interaction. And so my claim is not that virtual reality is going to be a game changer. My, my claim is actually much more limited, which is I, I, I sense that the, the State Department and foreign ministers are going there because we know that they are, because they, they talk about it and they're, they're buying these things. They're buying the Oculus. They're, they're experimenting with it. Uh, and so I think it's an open research question as to what, what difference it makes. I take your point there. But this is, this is a technology that's coming. But from my perspective, having the ability to interact in a more human way can never be a bad thing. And so if it turns out that the virtual reality technology makes us more human and human human connections are, are, are perceived by those involved as being more real, I'm all for it. And I'm open to the idea that that virtual reality experience might, in a, in a very strange way, be more beneficial than, than Zoom or a telephone call or certainly a written letter. Uh, and so, so to me, this technology is very promising. It remains to be seen what, what's going to happen with it. But I am optimistic about the future uh, for, for resolving diplomatic crises. If I can have my head of state get into the room with another head of state like this, imagine that. You have a situation with Taiwan. They're about to launch an attack. We get this intelligence from an artificial source or a human source or whatever. It's about to happen. And Biden just walks into a room, sits down, and Xi is there in the room with him. That's a game. Does it matter if they're using like particular cartoon characters for their avatar? <laughs> so so Biden walks into the room and Touché. Putin is like Touché. like a like a Putin on a horse. You know, I wish I wish we had video of this because there's a State Department. I will put this in the chat for for Professor Kaplos. Maybe we can put this picture up on on the on Blackboard when we sure, launch this yeah. podcast. But there is actually a very fun uh, virtual reality. Uh, thing that the State Department was recently doing. If you scroll down to the bottom of that link, Jeffrey, oh, yeah. uh, you will see the the cartoon cartoon characters that you were referencing. Well, like I, I would think she <laughs> would be Shrek, right? <laughs> you know, you don't you don't mess with Shrek. I don't, don't know. Mess with Shrek. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, picking your caricature, your 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 what, what's the word for this? What's the it's an avatar. avatar? Avatar. Yes. Picking your avatar. It's a costly signal. Old, there would be a whole <laughs> academic discipline about that, like how you how you pick how leaders pick their avatars. This thing is going to keep you employed. Let we me... should start working on this paper right now. <laughs> we want to get ahead of things. That's right. Thanks, Marcus, for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jeff. This has been great. And uh, we'll see everyone next time. Uh, do we have time for a, uh, an Ask Cheap Talk question? Let's go to the let's go to the phones. All right. Julian um, and Lexington, what do you got? <laughs> It's it's actually Daniel from Lorton. And uh, <laughs> Daniel from Lorton wants to know, what is your favorite Thanksgiving side dish? Oh. Well, let me first say, are you a turkey person? Or are you uh, are you a not a turkey person? I'm a turkey person. You're a turkey person. I don't, I don't love turkey, um, but I do feel like on Thanksgiving it's a traditional thing, and so I, I eat it. I mean, part of, part of the issue with turkey, unless you're going to do the um, – I always call it Sasquatch, but that's the wrong word. Spatch, spatch, spatchcock. Spat- yeah, <laughs> that's the only way to do it. But and I've done it before. It's just so messy. And but sort if you of if you spatchcock the turkey, for those not familiar, that means basically just flattening down the turkey so it all cooks. Yeah, cut it up into pieces, basically, kind of yeah. flatten it out. Yeah. Yeah, but the the problem is then you don't get the big carving moment. You don't get the carving moment. It's a pain in the butt. You got you got the turkey juices all over your yeah. kitchen because that like, turkey. You don't want to see that turkey. Like no. in polite company again, once it's been spatchcocked, it's like, no, 
It looks terrible. It looks terrible. And and the other thing is, if we're being honest, it doesn't taste that much better. It's a little juicier, <laughs> you know, but it's not exactly. Turkey is just not a great meat to be eating, first of all. You know, it's just it's just not great. So so I, I do like the turkey. I like the I like the look of the turkey. I like it has the turkey roasts in the oven. You get the smells in the house. I like pulling that sucker out. As I told my students the other day, I say, if you're going to cook a turkey, what you have to do is let it rest. Yeah, resting is important. critical too many people pull that turkey out and they slice right into it which is terrible the other thing i told my students you don't pull it at 165 if you pull it at 165 no, you're, eating, yep. you're eating turkey yep. that's like 180 you yeah know, it keeps cooking it. after it gets out of the oven my friends I, under, I know this is difficult for people and i'm not a physicist either i understand it's difficult to understand how the temperature can go up once it's out of the oven but it's a thing it's something about the way the thing radiates or whatever it doesn't really matter but the point is is that you got to pull that turkey i would say 150 155 max and i as a caveat i'm not responsible if you end up with food poisoning this is just this is entertainment value only this is not medical advice but you pull it at 150 155 bring it up to temp as it sits there on your table or your your kitchen uh shelf or whatever but for, for longer than you would think i think that it, the, the letting it rest period for a big turkey is is longer than people think it is it, people think that it's going to get cold they think it's going to be it's not that that turkey is going to retain the heat for hours. I once read actually that Gordon Ramsay, uh, when he cooks a turkey, when they cook turkeys uh, for Christmas in in London at this his restaurant, he let the turkey rest for as long as it cooked. So they would cook it for however you know, let's say three hours or something like that. He would let it rest for three hours. Wow! And it was still it was still warm because the 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 idea is that by letting it rest, you let the juices sort of read do their thing. If you slice into a turkey, the minute you take it out, the juices come out of the turkey. That's not what you want. You want to redistribute it in, in the bird, and that's a, a process that takes time. To answer your question, though, I'm a stuffing guy. I like I like we I've, had, I've been sort of uh, having the same stuffing since my childhood. We put sausage in there, onions, uh, either homemade breadcrumbs or or you know you buy the package stuff. It doesn't really matter. Uh, some egg, you know, and and it's great. And I and I do like to stuff the bird. I know that's controversial. But I like to stuff the bird. You, oh, you stuff like in the bird. You stuff the bird. I do. I I have a I make a a, a version that I put in a casserole dish, and I have that. But I also will stuff it with some. So speaking uh, of poisoning our listeners, exactly. That, now don't that, do that. Don't that, do that. No, it's delicious. But that you really do have to make sure it comes up to one sixty five. So use use your thermopen or whatever to make sure there's no raw turkey juices in your stuffing. And also it, it will mean that the, the turkey is overcooked. Cook. That's the problem, right? Not so if, overcooked. If you're gonna get the if you're gonna get everything in the stuffing cooked up to temp, then you're gonna end up overcooking the dark meat. That that's my my. Uh, it can be done. It can or be white done. meat, rather. Yeah, it can be done. Yeah, the white meat. Let me ask you this then: What if you don't stuff the turkey? What do you put in the cavity of the bird? You just, nothing. Yeah. Or apple or something like. What do you? No. No. Nothing. 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 Oh, okay. Do you eat the neck and the gizzards? I do not. Do you make a gravy out of them? Uh, no. How about the liver? Do you eat the no, turkey I don't, liver? No, I don't. The turkey liver. For those that are adventurous, you take the liver. You know, they usually get it comes like a little baggy. Take the liver out. It'll be small. Saute that. A little olive oil or butter, and then slice it and put it on like a cracker. So if it were up to me, there would be no turkey at Thanksgiving. There's almost no situation in which I wouldn't prefer chicken to turkey, you know? So I, I don't really, but it's not up to me because I'm generally not the main, we, we haven't hosted in a while uh, Thanksgiving. So we're going to visit family and it's, you know, the whoever's home it is, is the, the menu, uh, the chief menu person. That's so. Fair. So um, I will gladly eat whatever turkey someone is willing to make. 
Um, but my favorite side is uh, I'm a big Brussels sprouts at at, at uh, Thanksgiving person. I think I, the, I, I look, I love Brussels sprouts as well. I usually will make a Brussels sprouts dish. Yeah, uh, I do a little bacon. Do the do the, the Brussels and the ba- the Brussels sprouts and the bacon delicious. Yeah, we have too many vegetarians in my uh, in my family for me to get away with that. But um, we do. Yeah. We'll do like a balsamic roasted uh, mm-hmm. a Brussels. We'll do some braising glaze sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the way to go. Um, I also you. just like a good mashed potato. Yeah, yeah. Good mashed potato. That's a, that's, uh, that's and, nice. and the key there, students, you got to use a lot of butter. Unfortunately, it's just it's just what it is. You know, yeah. sort of equal parts potato, equal part butter. <laughs> That's right. Wait, and and <laughs> some heavy, the, heavy, heavy cream, maybe some heavy cream. Heavy cream. That should be the name of this podcast. <laughs> Equal parts butter. Equal parts butter. Equal parts That's potato. Right. Yeah. yeah. We should do a call-in show for Thanksgiving where people call us and ask us ask us for help. On with, Thanksgiving uh, itself. I think yeah. that would be great. Yeah. We should do now, that. Now, you're a sports fan, Jeff. Are you looking forward to the, the football on Thanksgiving? You know, I, I both look forward to it and dread it because my mm-hmm. beloved Detroit Lions... Oh, uh, play, I was just going to say, yeah. Play every Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, that used to be a, a good thing. I used to I used to look forward to the, the football on Thanksgiving. Um, but, you know, for the last uh, 25, 30, 40 years or so, um, that has not been uh, that's not gone well. The Detroit Lions, uh, um, not a not a strong record of success um, in those games. So who we pl- who, who are the Lions playing this year, Marcus? That's a great question. I don't know. I haven't yeah. even looked at the games this year. Yeah. Is it true that um, the Lions, like the reason this all started was that the Lions had like the, the, some owner or something had like this like gimmick. It was sort of like no one was going to the games. And so he thought if they had him on a holiday, uh, people would go. And it turned out to be this like brilliant move. And then the Cowboys like eventually, you know, copied them somehow and, and you know, got it institutionalized with the NFL that they were always going to have a game as well. I think that's the story. I think it was yeah. just like a gimmick. I think you're right. I think it was a marketing gimmick. Um, yeah. And uh, back in the mid thirties, I think this started when, uh, the lions just as bad then as they are now. And, uh, so they (laughs) were not not, possible. They're pretty bad now. Right. So they, they weren't, um, the, 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 you know, the number one team in town. And so it was, uh, um, this was a way to get people, you know, who might otherwise, what are you going to do on a Thanksgiving afternoon? Right. It's Uh, a brilliant, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's just so brilliant. I mean, it's an, it's an obvious like thing. You just have football games all afternoon. People can watch. If you, if you're into Thanksgiving TV, you get the parade in the morning, the Macy's Day Parade, which is back in person now, evidently this year. And then you can watch football. And then that third game, the, 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 the night game as well, it used to just be on the NFL Network. Now I think it's actually on just regular broadcast TV. So you can watch that for, you know, the whole day. Yeah. It means that if you don't like your family, number one, you can just sit there and watch TV, which is great. And if you do like your family and they like you, you have something to talk about. You can talk about how bad the Lions are for three hours. And you can talk about how, how great the Cowboys are. Yeah, or you can it's, talk about fantastic. the role of uh, of machine learning in uh, government Automated analysis. Automated weapon systems, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm looking here. It looks like the Lions are 37, 41, and two lifetime in the in on on uh, Thanksgiving. So, um, what is their record overall during that period of time? <laughs> so it's, probably, <laughs> it's probably pretty similar, Marcus. Yeah, it's I, a, my my hypothesis is that or my prediction is that ninety years of, of uh, I Lions bet they over, I, My guess is they overperform. Well, it's tricky because they always play at home, right? So that's, that's going right. to be biased. Yeah. But yeah. I would think that they play better on Thanksgiving. All else being equal, I guess we'll see you back here on Thanksgiving Day for our for the calling. Yeah, for the live the call-in call-in show. We'll get the eight hundred number posted. Yeah, um, everyone, be safe with your with your turkeys and uh, don't overcook them. Don't overcook them. But cook them enough. <laughs>